sign of the post-war times is the reopening in Toronto of the world's biggest annual fair, the Canadian National Exhibition. Owned and developed by the people of Toronto, it's become a giant international fair, music festival and sports rally, all rolled into one. And this year, thousands of eager children are looking forward to seeing the wonders of the X for the first time, like Johnny. Now, for the first time since 1941, Canadians are heading for the big park on the lakefront for all the fun of the fair and a glimpse of the new horizons of Canadian enterprise. In the 97 buildings, there's plenty to see. Dog shows, cat shows, electric typewriters, television receivers, plastic bathroom sinks, rear-engined automobiles, streamlined tractors, fireproof ironing boards, jet-propelled aircraft, and famous military bands. Over a thousand major exhibits, and of course, the Midway, complete with sword swallowers and bearded ladies. Welcome to D-Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Kuitis. On this episode, we speak with seminal Canadian artist and entrepreneur, Mr. Charlie Pachter. Charlie Pachter, welcome to D-Next. I'm uh, very happy and grateful uh, to have you be a part of this series. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. And you are someone that I've been interested in interviewing for quite a quite a long time now. And there's a, well, there's many reasons for it, but the primary kind of reason or, or curiosity I have is that so much of your work and your identity is connected to, and I guess colluded with this idea of Canadian culture or what it means to be uh, Canadian. And I wanna know how, how much of your work that you do or that you've done in your life was influenced by growing up in Toronto in, in uh, you know whatever time period that was, it was a transformative time, but how much of that influenced who you are? Well, let me just say, I studied art history at the University of Toronto in the 60s. And I then went off to uh, Expo 67 and I worked there for two years. It was one of the most glamorous periods of my young life. I was in my 20s. And um, I grew up in a period when every Canadian art magazine was full of stories about American pop artists. This was the time of Warhol and Wesselman and Oldenburg and all of the American art stars. And uh, I could never understand as the grandson of immigrants why there was a peculiar non-star attitude in Canada, that everything that came from elsewhere was deemed to be important and that everything that came from here wasn't. And I could not understand that. Once again, as I said, the grandson of immigrants, I was like a Canadian version of Andy Warhol. Um, but having said that, growing up in the period of pop art, uh, when uh, everything, as I said, for, uh, from elsewhere was deemed to be important, um, I, 
became fascinated with Canada at a very young age. At age four, in 1947, I was chosen to play a lost boy in a national film board movie about the reopening of the Canadian National Exhibition. Uh, and in that movie, I was um, followed around by cameramen for two weeks, and I got to shake hands with Prime Minister Mackenzie King, was kissed by Barbara Ann Scott, sat on the lap of the prize fighter Joe Lewis, and I got this illusory impression that Canadian meant glamorous. And of course, 20 years later, I did go to Expo 67 uh, when I was in my 20s. And then I got a job teaching at the University of Calgary in 1969, and I drove across Canada alone in a little Envoy epic. And I was so overwhelmed at the vastness of the country and the size that when I finally got to Calgary and having crossed the prairies and uh, arrived just uh, at, the, at the base of the Rocky Mountains, I began to realize what a spectacular country this was and how as part of our history, we didn't know how to turn living artists into stars. And I started doing pop art when I was in Calgary. I did my first image of the queen on the, of uh, a Mountie. Uh, uh, again, the art magazines were full of stuff by um, American artists. And when I finished teaching in Calgary, I came back to Toronto and uh, had a big show of streetcars. When Andy Warhol was doing soup cans, I did the TTC streetcar, the Red Rocket, and had a big show at the Isaacs Gallery in 1972, which was a huge hit. Uh, but I came to realize what the provincial mindset was in this vast underpopulated country, and that I would have to deal with that throughout my career. And that's what I've done. So now then, in 2021, uh, how has the world of art uh, evolved in Canada since those early days in the 60s? Has it? Well, there have been many Canadian artists who have learned how to play the international game. The, the best one, I think, would be Jeff Wall, mm -hmm. huge uh, constructed photographs. There are some artists who've learned how to do that and, and to do it well. But for Canada to have a Hockney or a Warhol, uh, I'm something of a little bit of both of those. But I came to realize in my mid-career, by the time I had uh, hit my 50s and had gone through five different dealers, most people think I've never had a dealer. It's not true. I started with Jack Pollock in 1964, and then Doris Pascal, then Av Isaacs, then Walter Moose. They're all dead, and I'm still here at age 78. Um, I came to realize, he said modestly, that I had certain skills that other artists didn't have, and I learned how to use them. For example, whenever I would have a show, uh, a big show, and I made a grand gesture in 1981, I had an exhibition of my flag paintings on Queen Street that opened the night that Pierre Trudeau had announced the repatriation of the Constitution. And all of Toronto was there. Pierre Burton and Barbara Frum and June Colwood and Gordon Sinclair and Peter Zosky, all gone now. A different Toronto, a Toronto that was um, more the art world. Everybody knew everybody. But anyway, the flag show was, uh, in, was reviewed by John Bentley Mays in the Globe and Mail. And he said, moreover, the couch art for the walls of patriotic dentists. 
This is what I was having to deal with. So later on, I invented my own art critic with a hyphenated name, like John Bentley Mays. And his name is, you have to get the pun, he comes from Three Rivers, Don Rouge Humber. <laughs> yes, sir. And Don would say about my work, I would take out an ad in the Globe and Mail at the time when everybody was pre-computer, when they were reading the Saturday Globe and Mail art um, ads. And I would say, so stunning words fail me, a legend in his own mind, signed Don Rouge Humber, art critic. And I was overwhelmed by the response that I got to this. I would open my gallery uh, on a Saturday and Sunday afternoon. And I remember selling eight paintings to a collector from Munich who came into the gallery. And when I asked him, how did you hear about me? He said, well, I have known of your work for years, but I see this glowing review in Globe and Mail from Donald Trumpa. <laughs> At which point I realized I was on a roll. And it wasn't until I hit my 50s that I realized what my strengths were and that I had to deal with the good things and the bad things about life uh, professionally as a Canadian contemporary artist. And one of the things I realized, bottom line, what is the real, uh, what is the real, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The um, bottom line, what it's about, I'm gonna be really blunt with you, is placing art in the homes of wealthy collectors. Hmm. It has nothing to do with what people write about you. It has nothing to do whether left-wing artists hate you. I had, I used to get all kinds of um, hate messages scrawled on the walls of my gallery on Queen Street that I had redone from an old IGA store. And there was, uh, there was, um, so the show said the painted flag. Someone had scr uh, scratched out the L, said the painted fag. Then there were signs saying, Pactor will burn, move to Cabbage Town. Like the uh, envy and the, uh, and the dislike from artists, have not artists, was very palpable. And I came to realize that being a success comes with its share of downers. But it never seemed to stop me. And now here I am. A year and a half, I'll be 80, and I have to look back on my career of uh, over 60 years of painting and realize how lucky I've been that I had certain skills, the left side and right side of the brain. I came from a middle-class family, and I was actually better at selling my work than the dealers, and so, I still am. Well, my, my, my comment was, you know, always an entrepreneur and finding a way to bring those two worlds uh, together. Do you, do you think that art is a big industry now compared to what it was then? There's a lot of wealth that's moved around. Well, let art. me just say that I feel for the young artists today because everything has changed since the computer and the internet. Uh, the words awesome and iconic have become almost um, meaningless because they are so uh, used by everybody. Everybody, uh, uh, you, you, pu you publish an image on Facebook and everybody goes, you're so awesome and you're so iconic. And there was a time when there was um, more discernment as to who merited being praised for their talent. Now everybody and their cousin and their aunt and uncle and their whoever is an artist if they say they are. You have a an iPhone, you're a photographer. Uh, it's a whole different world. 
That's why I'm saying bottom line, it's learning how to place art with wealthy uh, collectors in beautiful homes. And I'm not embarrassed to say it, that's how I've made my living over the last uh, 10 years. Um, whenever I put images on Facebook and I get people who say, oh, I love that, how much is it? And if I go $30,000, they freak out. There's a banality to the kinds of response you get on Facebook. Um, it's just what you have to deal with. And yet the habit of being on Facebook doesn't go away. I use Facebook not to say, I hurt, I cut my toe or my dog died. I use it almost exclusively focused on my professional activities. And if I've done a new painting, I'm happy to post it because the, the one great advantage to Facebook is it's a terrific archive. You can look at everything that you've posted and it's still there after 10 years. So it, it becomes very useful in that way. Do you think Canada has a powerful story to tell in art as it would be the case in some other countries? Indeed I do. And I have to tell you that, you know, with the times, um, the focus changes. Um, right now, the curators are in the official institutions are focusing on women and visible minorities and First Nations. And that's all fine. To be an older gay white male artist is not uh, in their, um, uh, it's not part of their agenda at this point. And that's why I'm saying um, the official art world uh, has a, a whole different attitude based on the times. Um, and in fact, I, ha I say this with, uh, with glee that I haven't had the need to be part of that official um, iconography in the same way, because when all is said and done, you know the Latin expression, ars longa vita brevis, art endures, life is short. Mm -hmm. And to give you some idea of how I deal, have dealt with the country's attitude, long ago, my portrait of the Queen on the Moose, which I did in 1972, should have ended up in the National Gallery. When I'm gone and the Queen's gone, it just may well do that. There's a collector who owns it, who may end up donating it and getting a huge tax receipt for it, but all that will happen after I'm gone. In the meantime, I've made millions from the image of the Queen on the Moose, and I've had a good time with it all, all these years and uh, have no regrets. When you- It has at... been called, he said modestly, by the late Lorraine Monk, who was a huge fan of mine. Yes. Uh, she said, it's the most important piece of post-colonial pop art to have ever been created in Canada. There you are. Well, and segue to my question, do you think that because of the work that you've done and, and others that the world takes Canadian artists, uh, sorry, Canadian artists um, seriously now, or do Canadians take Canadian artists seriously? Okay, it's a double-barreled question. One example, let me answer that by saying I've had um, international shows in France, Germany, and most recently in Bangladesh, where in Dhaka, a city of 22 million people, is a marvelous uh, enlightened collector named Durjoy Roman, who has collected a dozen paintings of mine and gave me an exhibition at the uh, 
National Museum of Bangladesh in Dhaka in 2018, and it was one of the most exciting highlights of my career. The, the show in France was in 1991, in uh, Germany in 1992, and in Bangladesh in uh, 2018. And I must say that the respect that gets shown to us as Canadian artists is remarkable outside the country. The irony is the National Gallery of Canada has never purchased anything of mine. They will probably eagerly accept donations from collectors in the next 20 years. Uh, having said that, one of the things I have done is I have donated works and key works of mine to small instant smaller uh, official um, uh, art galleries across Canada from Edmonton to Saskatoon to uh, Peel to Brampton to uh, Peterborough to Guelph and they have all eagerly accepted my work and given me uh, tax uh, usable donations for them so I'm pleased about that when you look at your contemporaries, let's say, in the world of music, uh, Jody Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot, Leonard Cohen. Um, how, how do you think you are alike with that group or, or is there a comparison? Oh, what a lovely complimentary comparison. The, the difference uh, about between musicians and writers and artists is that you can buy it, um, you know, a, 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 CD or whatever for 15 or $20, you can buy a novel for $30. And uh, Canada has uh, been spectacular in promoting its writers and uh, its musicians. The visual arts are different because they're a little more elitist and a little more difficult to um, get out there to the world. That's why I've done so many reproductions of my work. I'm something of a socialist. You can still buy um, a signed numbered print of mine for six or seven hundred dollars. Uh, but the, uh, the, the ones you've mentioned who are all brilliant, I think Joni Mitchell is spectacular. And of course, Atwood has become the literary star of our times. Um, but I do believe that uh, the visual arts are a different ballgame. Uh, there are so many brilliantly talented Canadian um, visual artists from the 20th and 21st century, some of my favorites being Joy and Todd, um, who, who is just terrific and has had shows all over the place as well. Um, Graham Coftry, one of the, an unsung hero, one of the great painters. Um, so there, there's so much of that, but to be able to uh, put us in the same category is difficult because the visual arts are, are um, somewhat different. Do you think there was some sort of a mutual influence on on each other's work? Or am I not imagining this correctly that there was a time when everyone sort of came from the same kind of bubble or the same scene, or at least at some point? Well, you have previously mentioned Yorkville to me and looking back on those years, pre-computer, pre-internet, when it really did take a village in Yorkville Village. There was Joni Mitchell and Margaret Atwood reading her poetry and me having a show at Gallery Pascal. All this was in the 60s. Um, it was a different time. Um, the world has changed so significantly now. There was a time in the 80s 
when the fundraising dinners where all the glitter gals, the Catherine Nugents and Sarah Waxmans, and um, there's so many different, um, what I call the disease dinners where you were invited out and the <laughs> glamour of going out to these places where I was running around like Truman Capote, entertaining everybody at these dinners and coming home exhausted after help, telling jokes all evening. That era is gone. When you used to go to the theater, you knew half the people in the theater. Now you can't even go to the theater, but it, when you do go, you don't know too many of the people. You don't know anybody anymore. That's how the city has changed so dramatically over the last 20 to 30 years. What are you pursuing in your work? Is there a common through line or let me a just goal? Say, let me just say, the pandemic has been a blessing in disguise, crazy as it is and how sad it is. But in general, artists self-isolate, it's just normal. And over the last six to seven months, in addition to what I call my Andy Warhol branded images, the queen, the moose, the flags, the barns, and streetcars are all packed through images. In the last eight to nine months, believe it or not, I have been going back and forth between my Toronto studio and my Aurelia studio, and I've been painting flowers. Um, I grew uh, in, in Aurelia, I have a compound with four buildings. I love it. I'm right in the heart of town. And I did up there what I did on Queen Street 40 years ago, and I bought property in Aurelia in the early 2000s when real estate was like 10% of the cost of Toronto. Um, and um, I got lucky and I met Keith, my life partner who is from Aurelia and his family. And we, we have a dual life where we go back and forth between uh, the big city and small town Ontario, small city Ontario, and enjoy the change of pace uh, when in an hour and a half you can go up there and be in a different world but up there i started painting flowers of all things and you know looking back on van gogh's irises and uh, andy warhol's uh, flowers and uh, the most important ones of all the georgia o'keefe's um, i'm glad to be in their company and i've had a wonderful time putting those images onto facebook and getting fabulous uh, responses from everybody and I hope to have a show of the flowers um, when times get better that's all I can say but I, I'm now adding them to my list of flags barns queens moose streetcars and flowers <laughs> so the pandemic as I said has been something of a blessing in disguise uh, and as would be the case with uh, a few other areas, uh, you know, in music and in, you know, for writers, you know, I guess um, uh, hopefully we can look towards maybe a new, new renaissance, because if my uh, history serves me correct, uh, the first renaissance or the big one anyway, came after uh, a similar pandemic. Uh, and uh, I think whatever it is that you're working on now, we uh, we can't wait to see it. Do, do you think that things would have been a lot different for you if as a young man you had decided to move to Paris or New York and pursue your artistic vision there? Well, it's interesting because the one time I thought about it, I had a dear friend named Jill Finston, originally from Toronto, who lived in West Hollywood and worked at the Getty Museum in the early 80s. And I flew down to LA and spent a week with her going around to the different galleries and the workshops and the studios. 
And you know, I, I realized then that it wasn't in the cards for me, that it wasn't something that I wanted, that I, my love for Canada, for all the strengths and weaknesses was unabated. And I felt that I wanted to, uh, I remember when I graduated from the Cranbrook Academy of Art in Michigan in 1966 with a master's degree, I stood at the top of my class and my instructor at the time said, man, what are you going back to Canada for? You should go straight to New York. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I have an, uh, this love for my country and I would rather spend my life um, building up the country that means so much to me uh, than going elsewhere. And so I did, I, uh, I ended up becoming, uh, you know, doing my thing in this country and I've never looked back and I've never regretted it. So on that note, uh, final question and final thoughts. This is where we have the big idea segment. Um, what advice then or message do you have for Canada or for new artists just starting out or getting the urge? Oh, that's a loaded one. I My heart goes out to the young artists today because the, it's a, as I said before, it's a completely different set of circumstances and they have a lot of um, challenges. But the beautiful thing about youth is energy, commitment, desire to achieve. Um, and as let's just take a, a number for the, for the sake of it, uh, out of a hundred artists, how many are geniuses? Three, four, five, how many uh, are going to succeed? 10%, who knows? Um, I look at uh, once I'll, I'll use Aurelia as an example. There are in a, in a town of 32,000 people, there's a whole arts district in a street where the average artist might earn 12 to $15,000 a year if they're lucky. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's not easy. So you have to have other sources of income, whether it's teaching or being a physiotherapist or, uh, or whatever. Um, you have to do other things as well. But I do believe that art is a hunger and it's something either you feel it and it becomes the quintessence of your life or you move on to doing other things. Um, as I said, I've been lucky because I have used the right and left side of my brain. I'm in the midst of building a new $7 million addition to my building here in downtown Toronto, right beside the AGO. I was horrified to watch the costs escalate to skyrocket. I thought it was gonna be two and a half, it's gonna be closer to seven. How am I doing this? I'm borrowing money at 2.45%, which is the lowest it's been in history. Mm -hmm. And that's where the developer, designer, visionary in me has gotten lucky. And this will be my legacy. I'll be 80 in a year and a half and the new Charles Pachter Museum will become something of a landmark in downtown Toronto, the neighbor to OCAD-U, to the AGO, and um, now right beside the AGO on the west end, the new, the new building going up. Anybody who wants to see pictures of it, just go on my website, cpachter.com, and you'll watch it in progress. Another nine months to go. It's taken nearly three years to make it happen but it's a pretty exciting time and it's been something of a morale booster during this bizarre these bizarre times to keep busy watching the new baby uh growing up so keep an eye on it and uh 
when things get better, come to the opening in November. Well, and another reminder of just how important visionaries and artists are to the world because you do give us things to look forward to and to make life worth living. And with that, uh, Charles Pachter, it's been a true delight to speak with you. And I want to thank you very much for being on the series. My pleasure, Paul, and best of luck with this terrific series. I think you're doing good stuff. Thank you, sir. So, I wouldn't say that you have, I wouldn't say you have a great deal to worry about, Charles. That's very Canadian. <laughs> Nothing at all, and nothing at all, it meant nothing.